that's the question. Now we're going to spend some time reading God's word before Ron comes up to speak with us. Uh, so we'd love for you to follow along. So put out your Bible or the app on your phone, or there's a link down the bottom of the In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his things, sustaining all things by his powerful work. After he had provided purification for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits, and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever in heaven. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all lay out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. So which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels, ministering spirits, sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. But since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his faith. Thanks very much, Alex. Great to see you here at the EU public meeting. If I haven't met you before, my name's Rowan Kemp. My privilege to be helping us over these first couple of weeks to look at the book of Hebrews in the Christian New Testament. But before we start to dig into that passage that Alex just read for us, why don't I lead us in prayer? Heavenly Father, we do pray that you might grant us minds to understand this word that you have given to us here in the Christian Bible so that we might hear you speak and see the Lord Jesus more clearly. Amen. Now, I'm sorry to break this to you, but Harry Potter is a fiction. Frodo Baggins, a fiction. This might affect you a little bit more if you're a person who's had particular sort of, you know, romantic uh, identification with certain, you know, uh, literary works. Mr. Darcy, I'm sorry, he's a fiction. And I think you're old enough to cope with this one. Santa Claus is actually a fiction. But God, God is not a fiction. The consistent message of the Christian Bible is that there is one true and living God. And further, that that 
one true living God, who is not a fiction, that he speaks. He speaks to us. So here's my little question for you today. When was the last time you heard God speak? And how did he do it? So why don't you have a chat to the people around you and just, when was the last time you heard God speak? And how did he do it? Have a little chat with the person next to you. I'm going to give you another little question to insert into your conversation. So now, just add into your conversation, not just when was the last time you heard God speak and how did he do it. I want to add in a question, what did he say? Chat to the person next to you. What did he actually say? Can you remember? It's a bit curious. You might agree with me. It's a bit curious, I think, that sometimes we can affirm, oh, yes, I believe that the one true living God, that he speaks, and I can tell you how I think he speaks to me, but sometimes I can't really remember exactly what he said. Where we're going today in this particular part of the book of Hebrews is we're going to be encouraged to pay more careful attention to what the one true living God has said to us. That's where we're going today. And we're following on this theme of that the one true living God speaks, which we had introduced to us last week as we started this little journey through the book of Hebrews when we looked at the first, first sentence, really, in this particular New Testament book, where we heard that the writer said, in the past, God has spoken to our ancestors through the prophets in many and various ways, but now, the new now, God has spoken to us in his Son. And so we're following on with this theme of that the one true living God has spoken, and he's spoken to us particularly in the person of his son, Jesus of Nazareth. That's what we're looking at. And as we saw last week, the writer to the Hebrews, the way he encourages you to pay careful attention to what God has said through his son Jesus is by reminding you of the magnificence of Jesus. And you might remember that we looked at that first rather long sentence and I pointed out last week that it has a bit of a sandwich structure and the hero, the most impressive thing in this description of Jesus in verses 2 to 4 is in the very middle of the sandwich. And I've sort of summarised it up here. It's not the full text, but I've just summarised it, that he's spoken to us in his son, who he appointed heir of all things, through whom we're told he made the world, the son who is the very radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his very being, we're told, who upholds the entire world and upholds all things through his own powerful word, who, having made purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, of his Father in heaven, and has now inherited a position and a name which is superior to that of angels. This was the description we saw last week and we started to dig into this. But I've got a little question. When you look at this, this sounds all very impressive if all of this is true, if this is true. How do I know that this is true about Jesus? I mean, the writer to the Hebrews is saying it, but does he have any evidence? Or is he a bit like us when we're trying to dash off that next 1,500-word essay, you know, for our subject, and we're sort of, oh, just a bit of blah, 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 blah. There's not much evidence really supporting my argument. But is that what he's going? No. You got your Bible there? You want to open it up? Have a look at what is the very next word that he writes. What's 
chapter 1, verse 5. What's the first word? Have you got a Bible there or on your phone? Someone call out what the first word in your English translation of chapter 1, verse 5. What is it? For, F-O-R. For, that he goes through all, he says all these things about Jesus and then he says, for, and then he's going to give you the reason, the reason he can say this. He's not just pontificating, not just making up a fiction. He's going to give you hard evidence about this. And what he does, and this takes you through the rest of chapter 1, is he gives evidence for these statements by drawing on the Christian Old Testament, by drawing on the Jewish scriptures. Why is that significant? Well, because we know that the writer to the Hebrews, he's writing to a bunch of Christians who came predominantly out of Judaism. They were Christians who had a Jewish background. So for them, that Jewish scriptures, what we'd call the Christian Old Testament, that mattered a lot. So he can talk about the magnificence of Jesus based on the Jewish scriptures. That's going to carry a fair bit of weight. You understand? And how many quotations does he give? Interestingly, he gives seven. Seven quotations. Now, does he make anything of the fact that there's seven? No, he doesn't say anything about that. But if you know your Christian Bible, you know that seven is a pretty significant number in the Bible. Back in Genesis, you read that the one true living God created all things in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. And as a result of that, he instituted for his old covenant people a weekly, a seven, every seven days to have a Sabbath, a day off every seven days, a day of rest to remember the Lord. So seven is a big number, an important number in the Christian Bible. And in particular, it seems to represent completion, the full story. Everything happened in the seven days at the beginning of Genesis. And so is it significant that the writer here marshals seven quotations to say, yep, here's the fullness of the picture about this person, Jesus, the son. Now, like any good writer of an essay, not that he's writing an essay, but like any good writer of an essay, he marshals his evidence to line up with the statements that he's made. And it may not be apparent to you as you just read through the text, but actually the quotations line up pretty well with all of these different statements that he makes. So let me point that out to you to help you as you read it yourself. Notice here, and I'll point out the first one, each, there's a verbal, a verbal or thematic sort of connection between the statement he made in verses 2 to 4 and then the evidence he puts together in verses 5 through to 13. So, for example, in this first one, he started off by saying, talking about Jesus as God's son, and when you go through to verse 5, he has two quotations from the Old Testament, one from Psalm 2, one from 2 Samuel 7, which both use the word son. That's the verbal connection, right? He's looking for evidence in the Jewish Testament, Old Testament for what's going to connect to this statement he's made. And the verbal connection here is the word son. And that's how he connects it. If you then go to the next statement that he makes, that the son has been appointed heir of all things, in verse 6, the evidence he marshals is from Deuteronomy chapter 32, which uses the word firstborn. Because in the culture of the day, if you were the heir, if you were the one who's going to inherit everything, that meant you were usually the firstborn. It was the firstborn who inherited. So there's a, 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 a thematic sort of connection between those two ideas of heir and firstborn. That's what connects the two. Going back to verses 2 to 4, the son through whom he made the world, in verse 7, 
He quotes from Psalm 104, verse 4, where he talks about that the angels were made. The connection is that word made. All things were made through the Son, including the angels. And why is that significant? We're going to come back to that in a moment. What's the difference between angels and the Son? In the very middle of that first sandwich, we read that he was the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his very being. Well, in verses 8 to 9, he quotes from Psalm 45, where he quotes, it's an unusual passage in Psalm 45. In Psalm 45, it seems that the king is being, the king of Israel, Old Testament Israel, is being addressed. But in a weird way, he's addressed as God. Now, that's so strange that a human being would be called God in the Old Testament. If you go and read what all the scholars say about it, they say, oh, that can't be what's really meant. We have to sort of change that he's sort of, he's talking to God, but then addressing God's throne. And that's what they have to do all this sort of movement around to try to make it all work. Because how could you ever address a human being as God? That makes no sense. Until you meet Jesus, the Son, who actually is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, of his being. When you meet Jesus, you actually are seeing the one true living God come amongst us in the person of his Son. And suddenly, what was there in the Old Testament, which didn't really make much sense, suddenly now makes perfect sense when you meet this Son who sits on God's throne, who is both divine and fully human. So that's the connection there. Then we can move, move on. The son who we read in those first couple of verses upholds all things by his powerful word. And if you go to chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, the con- again, he quotes from Psalm 102, and the theme here is creation. So you get the idea of that he's the one through whom all things are created, the one who then sustains all those things. So there's a thematic connection about creation. The one who, having made purification for sin, sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. And then he quotes in verse 13, Psalm 110, verse 1, which talks about the son sitting at the right hand, the one sitting at the right hand of the father. So that's, again, the verbal connection, sitting at that position. And then he rounds it out by saying, so the son has inherited a position and a name as superior to the angels. And then in verse 14, he parallels that and saying, yes, the son is indeed superior to the angels. So this is how he's done it. He's, all he's been doing the rest of that chapter, you might not have ever realized it if you'd read it before, is he's providing direct evidence for all of these statements that he's made. So what's the effect of all this? What's the overall point? Well, when you read through all of those Old Testament quotes that he marshals, He's really making one clear point, which is that the Son is the one who is now seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven in this position of exalted rule and authority, whereas the angels, they serve. The Son rules, but the angels serve. Now, let me show you something that's a little bit strange, though, as we think about that. You've got your Bible there. Have a look at verses... 3 and 4, which we looked at last week, but I didn't really talk about this very much. It's, there is something in verse 4 that is quite 
unexpected, I think. If you come from a Christian background and you're used to talking and thinking about Jesus, there's something in verse 4 that, that when you stop and actually think about it, it's a bit weird. So I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. I want you to see if you can pick what's a bit strange in verse 4. So let verse 3, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now, this is a very poor question I'm asking you. It's sort of like, guess what's in my head? Like, it's almost impossible, right? But, but it's not impossible. There's something that's a bit, I think is genuinely a bit odd about verse 4. What strikes you as a bit strange about verse 4? <coughs> something you say, oh, that's a bit weird. He became, thank you, yes. So he became, so he's talking about after Jesus had provided purification, after Jesus had died, he was raised back to life, raised back to not his old life, raised back to eternal life. For 40 days, we know from the book of Acts, he was then appeared to the apostles and the disciples and he taught them and helped them understand this crazy thing that just happened. He'd been raised back to eternal life from the grave, helped them to understand that in the plans and purposes of God. Then after 40 days, he ascended to his father's right hand in heaven. He was exalted. So this is what he's thinking about. He's saying, okay, provided purification for sin, was resurrected, ascended, exalted, now seated at God's right hand in heaven. So he became, at that moment, as much superior to the angels as the name he had, son, is superior to their name, angels. He, be he became, like, that's a bit weird, isn't it? Don't you think Jesus was always superior to the angels because he was God the Son? It's a bit strange. Well, the perspective of the book of Hebrews is that until Jesus was resurrected and ascended and took that throne at his father's right hand, until that moment, he was not superior to the angels. He became superior to the angels at that moment. Why is that? Well, maybe there's a way of thinking about it. Yes, Jesus was always God the Son, incarnate as a human being. But when was the moment he took his throne? When was the moment he actually began to rule as the enthroned son of God? Only after he'd completed his work of making purification for sins and being exalted to the right hand. That is the moment that he becomes son in all his fullness when he's finished that work. That's the perspective of the book of Hebrews. Now, I should just make a comment then. What's all this stuff about angels? Why are the angels so significant? Because probably, my guess is, maybe no one here, me included, ever thinks very much about angels. Maybe that's not a big deal for you. Why is it such a big deal here in the opening chapter of the book of Hebrews? Well, the answer is because in the Old Testament, when the one true living God spoke and gave his law to his people, the nation of Israel, he did it through angels. <coughs> he did it through angels. Let me show you that. If you've got your Bible there, turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. You might not have realized this before. Acts chapter 7. 
If you look at verse 53 to start with, this is Stephen talking just before he's about to be killed for being a follower of Jesus. He says, verse 53 of Acts 7, he's addressing those who are about to kill him, you who have received the law, that's the Old Testament law, that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Or jump a bit earlier to verse 38, Stephen still speaking. He says, Moses was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. God spoke living words in the law, but it was communicated, mediated through angels in the Old Testament. And so that's why, remember, the writer to the Hebrews is writing to a bunch of Christians who came from a Jewish background. But as Christians, they were facing a lot of persecution, more persecution than the Jews who'd rejected Jesus were facing. So I've become a Christian out of my Jewish background. I'm facing a lot of persecution for that. What's more, it's been going on for a long period of time. I'm getting a bit weary. The temptation for me is, actually, you know what? Why don't I just forget about Jesus and just go back to... Judaism. I mean, God spoke through angels, for goodness sake, to give us the law. That wouldn't be a bad thing to go back to Judaism, surely. And it'd be a much easier road for me. But the writer's point is, the Son, when he speaks through the Son, Jesus, the Son is so much more superior than the angels. This is, his, this is God's final climactic word. How can you go away from that? So, Let's reflect on this for a moment. How does this impact you or me? Well, I think this picture that we've got here from Hebrews chapter 1 of the magnificence of Jesus, the Son of God, seated at his Father's right hand. This is who Jesus really is. Enthroned in glory who will actually, according to verse 11 and 12, whose rule will outlast the universe. Notice what it says there if you go back to Hebrews chapter 1. Have a look, verses 11 and 12. Actually, I'll read from verse 10. In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Remember Jesus, the one through whom the universe was created. Verse 11, they will perish but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. Think about that for a moment. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, through whom the whole universe was brought into being. Everything. And one day, he will just roll it up. He will remain, but the universe will come to an end. This is who Jesus is. He will outlast the universe. Uh, any of you ever watched the, uh, that show Survivor? Give us a wave if you've ever watched that show Survivor. A few people when you were younger and foolish and wasted time. You know how the game goes in Survivor, right? It has a, has a, a bit of a sort of a, a tagline. What is it? Outwit, outlast, outplay, something like that, you know, to be the ultimate survivor. I know there's some real fans here, I can tell, by your smirking. Um, 
I want you to imagine uh, a, a game of Survivor where it's down to three final companions and they're doing a finale with the three of you, right? And the three people in the final are you, you're there. You have made it to the final of Survivor. Congratulations, by the way. But you know it's going to be a hard-fought battle, this last one, right? Who's going to last to the end? There's you. There's Jesus. Could be a bit tricky. And there's the universe. The third, the third player is the universe. No worries. And so you're all standing there and you've all got your hand on the pole, right? <laughs> who's going la- to last the longest? Will it be the universe? That's going to be tricky. Jesus? Well, at least he's a human being. <laughs> and I think you're probably going to bow out the first. Probably. I'd hate to burst your bubble, but you're probably not going to last as long as the universe or probably Jesus. So you bow out first. And then you think you take your spot on the rock and you're watching how these last two are going to go. Um, I don't know how you'll last, but anyway, watching these last two, and you might think, wow, the universe, that's pretty, that's got a pretty good staying power. Jesus, not a contest. Not a contest. When, when Jesus says it's time, he will roll up the universe like a garment. This is who Jesus is. He lives, he's sitting at his father's right hand in heaven, and he will outlast the universe. His rule will never end. So my reflection for me and for you is this. Is our Jesus just way too small? Is the Jesus that you have in your head of what Jesus is like just way too small compared to this glorious reality? Jesus is not a fiction, right? He's not like Harry Potter or Frodo Baggins. He lives. But also, Jesus is not quite just like your best friend, is he? I mean, he is the friend of sinners. He is our friend. He's our brother, in fact. And yet, it's like having a friend, a brother, who is ruler of the universe. Imagine if your friend, maybe if you've come with a friend today who you're sitting next to or someone you just, just imagine, yeah, they're sitting here alongside me, but they are also the ruler of the universe. I, I might affect how I relate to them just a little bit. I mean, they're friendly to me, I'm very glad. But it just, yeah, he's your friend, but he's the ruler of the universe. He's the sun. Or some people's Jesus never grows bigger than the cradle. Little Jesus, meek and mild as a baby. That's not the Jesus who rules the universe. Or some people's Jesus is never gets past just a concept, part of the Christian intellectual framework, the mechanics of salvation. Oh, I can tell you all about what the Bible is, and I can tell you all about what the Holy Spirit does, and I can tell you all about the church, and I can tell you all about, you know, various theological concepts, and I can tell you all about Jesus, I can tell you about how he made atonement for sins, and I can tell you about his relationship in the Trinity, I can tell you all this stuff, but frankly, is he alive? Is he actually more than a concept there? Or for some people, Jesus is the spiritual life jacket that they keep under the seat in the plane. 
And only when it gets desperate do they rip him out, throw him on and pull the, pull the cord and say, Jesus, save me now. <laughs> when I need forgiveness. When it's just getting a bit too much. That's what, now, of course, Jesus is there for you in our struggles. We'll see that in the book of Hebrews. But he's more than just your spiritual life jacket. Is your Jesus the real Jesus? Or have you got a fake Jesus in your mind? Because this is who he is. So, what do we do about that? Well, the writer to the Hebrews helps us because he actually makes clear what we should do about this. Have a look at chapter 2, what he says there. How does he start in the very next sentence? The chapter divisions have been added in later. They're not particularly significant at all. The very next sentence, sentence, chapter 2, verse 1, is, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard through the Son, so that we do not drift away. Remember, that was their temptation. Drift away from what they'd heard through Jesus the Son. Drift away from Christian faith and retreat back to Judaism, the word that they'd heard through the angels. That's their temptation. But he's saying, no, no, because of who the Son is, we must pay more careful attention to what he said so that we don't drift away from it. And then he has a little bit of a warning for them. Verse 2, For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and obedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? He's saying to them, you want to go back to that message that came from God via the angels? You want to go back to Judaism? Well, just remember that word that actually came there, right? It was serious. It was binding. It was sure and steadfast. There was no sort of um, negotiating on it. When it came, it, it was set. And when it said, well, this is how you, you need to live and this is how you will enter into the salvation that God was promising, into the promised land, there are also consequences if you ignored it. And they were taken really seriously. He's saying, so if you've now come to the one greater than the angels, who speaks a greater word, who offers indeed a greater salvation, he says, then you're going to need to pay even more careful attention, aren't you? Because what might be the consequences of ignoring this word? So don't drift away from it and go back to Judaism because you've now got a greater message through a greater son promising a greater salvation which demands greater attention. Pay more close attention to what you've heard through the Son. Now, I think that um, actually provides another moment of reflection. If the first reflection is, is your Jesus too small? The second reflection, I guess, is, are you paying more close attention to what Jesus says to us? So I want you to imagine for a moment, you know when you're driving around and there's those warnings about uh, fire hazard? I can't remember the title you have. Fire, is it fire hazard? You know the ones I mean. You know the ones which have the sort of the semicircle and divided into, what are they called? Sectors? None of you know. Okay, right, okay, whatever they are. Divided into sections, right? And they've got that arrow that swings around like this. I will be, I will be it for you, right? Okay, right? I want you to imagine this is a, Paying attention to Jesus' radar thing, right? Okay? And so there's a range of options on this, the different sections of the semicircle. Um, I guess I need to do it. Where's the low, low one? Low one's on here, right? From 
I pay basically no attention. Is that it? Is that where that little arrow point is? I pay pretty much no attention to what Jesus And that might be you. Maybe you're still checking out the Christian faith. Maybe this is all at a bit of a distance at the moment. Well, then I'd say, well, remember who Jesus is. He's not a concept. He's alive. He rules. Maybe you need to pay some more careful attention because he's promising you a great salvation. Forgiveness for all our sins. (coughs) Entry into the very presence of God. Are you in the nun section? Are you in the, I pay a little attention? Jesus is part of my life and at times I listen to what he says. Are you in, I pay some attention? Are you in the, I pay a fair bit of attention? A fair bit of attention. Are you in the, I pay a lot of attention? Are you in the, I pay careful and diligent attention. Where are you? Day to day, week by week, year by year, in the small decisions you have to make about how you treat your parents, your friends, in the large decisions you'll have to make in the next five years, what job should I do, where should I live, where should I go to church, how will I, who will I spend my life with, all of those sort of decisions Do you pay more careful attention to what the one true living God has said through his son Jesus? That's for you to think about, right? But the warning and the encouragement here are clear. Pay more careful attention because we have a greater message through a greater son offering a greater salvation which requires greater attention. Now, I'll come back just in my final three minutes or so. And I come back to the question I started with, which was, how do you hear this God speak? How do you hear God speak through the Son? Because the writer to the Hebrews does provide an answer, and I want to show that to you. Have a look then at verses chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, halfway through verse 3. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. This is a really helpful verse if you want to think about how God speaks today. I'm going to draw it up for you. He says, this salvation was announced to us through the Son, Jesus Christ. He announces this salvation. Repent and believe. He says, here's Jesus announcing salvation, but he says it wasn't announced directly to the writer, to the Hebrews or the audience of the Hebrews. It was announced to those who first heard him. So here's the people who first heard him. Here's the apostles who were eyewitnesses. They heard Jesus and they announced that same salvation. They said, Jesus is Lord. Repent and believe the good news. Who did they announce it to? According to that verse, they announced it to the writer to the Hebrews, here's the author, and the people he was writing to, the Hebrews, the Jewish Christians. They announced it to us. Right? That's what he describes it. And then he says, which I don't have time to talk about, and God testified to their message by enabling them to do signs 
wonders, and miracles, which if you read other parts of the New Testament, always accompanied the testimony of the apostles. Nowhere in the Bible does it say it will always accompany everybody's testimony, but it was the standard way that God testified to the authenticity of the eyewitnesses' accounts about Jesus. But here's my question as we end. How has this message got to us today? Well, I guess those Christians 2,000 years ago passed it on to others, who 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 passed it on today? No. Because if that was how it was happened, what would, would you have any worries about that? What would your worry be? Just name it. Yeah, change through 2,000 years, passed down just person to person. That's not the only part of the story. What's the other part of the story was this eyewitness apostolic message was written down. Here is a book. Here's the New Testament. That apostolic testimony was written down in the New Testament. So they... That book that you're holding in your little hand there is your inspired, authoritative record of the apostles' eyewitness testimony. So sure, you didn't hear them speak to you firsthand, but you have the written record of their testimony, including records of the signs and wonders and miracles that they did, that God did through them to testify to it. So when we say we need to pay more careful attention to what we have heard, This is where we've heard it, in the words of the New Testament. That's where we have that apostolic testimony. And not only the New Testament, in the very chapter of Hebrews, what has the writer been using to to highlight who Jesus is? The Old Testament scriptures as well. So together we hear God speak about his son Jesus, that message, catch it in your Bible. You've got there today. So pay more careful attention to it. Next week we're going to go on and explore what the writer talks about in chapter 2, which is about this great salvation that he offers us. Thanks, Alex. So how about I pray to close for us? Uh, dear Lord, we give you great thanks to your son. We thank you uh, for sending him to his death and resurrection on the cross so that we can have a restored relationship with you. Lord, we pray uh, that you will help us to always be paying careful attention uh, to the salvation that you've given us. We pray that you will help us to not have a too small picture of Jesus. We pray that uh, our trust and faith in you will uh, influence every part of our lives as we seek to glorify you.